Hey, hey, Space Cadets, happy Wednesday. This is your Pathfinder pilot, Ryan Duffy speaking, and I am excited to welcome you back to the show. Today we will be talking with Seika and Brian Major, who are two leading recruiters or headhunters, if you will, for the new space industry, as well as the world of climate tech and clean energy startups and that sort of thing. They are the co-founders of Ad Astra, an executive and technical headhunting firm, and they're passionate about making the world a better place by advancing space and environmental technologies, which I think is a common denominator for a lot of the folks that they work with. Um, I'll save the longer version of, of their bios. I'll let them give it themselves, but just to give a glimpse of this conversation, I mean, we go all the way from big CNC machines and the backbone of American manufacturing to SpaceX's culture of, quote, extreme ownership and rapid iteration to Seika's theory about a funnel of, of talent around the industry and from, from leading companies to cutting edge startups, that sort of thing. We talk about negotiations uh, around equity and how kind of younger employees who are at a big company should think about that sort of thing. And throughout the entire thing, I make a tortured matchmaking analogy. So that's something. But we will uh, we'll bring them on here in just a second after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Kepler Communications, a company bringing the internet to space. Kepler is developing the infrastructure to support out-of-this-world communications by creating solutions that allow operators to access data in real time. The Kepler network will keep customers connected to on-orbit assets through optical inter-satellite links, which significantly increase capacity for mission-essential data downlinking to Earth. Kepler's services will expand your mission potential, all while solving current and future gaps in global space communications. To learn more about Kepler and how they are modernizing space communications, visit kepler.space. Again, that's kepler.space. Ryan and Seiko, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us, Ryan. Excited to be here. Y'all are the, the first couple, so it's, this should be a, a very fun conversation. And I'm, I, hope I'm, I hope I'm not, not third wheeling today. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's going to be yeah, great. Yeah, no, it's, it's just, just me on this end. So why don't both of you give the quick kind of elevator pitch of, of your backgrounds? And we'll build towards what y'all are, are building and working on today. Yeah, for sure. So my, my background's in aerospace engineering, got my bachelor's and master's in aerospace from Michigan, and then worked at SpaceX for a number of years, a couple different internships in different groups, and then was a propulsion engineer for about four years before heading up to the Bay Area to work at an early stage startup uh, before we started at Astra. Yeah. In my background, I studied psychology and business. And then I, I began my career in talent acquisition consulting. So not actually doing any hiring, but looking at the statistics and pain mm-hmm. points for large name brand corporations and optimizing their hiring and retention practices. And then I went on to work at a uh, CNC distribution company as uh, in talent acquisition. And I ended up creating a staffing agency for CNC professionals as a child company to that to that uh, organization that I was I was managing talent acquisition at. So I worked I worked on the corporate side and uh, on the consulting side of talent acquisition before we started at Astra. 
All right. Great. Thank y'all. So two questions, quick reaction questions in reverse order. For those who don't know, could you could you say what CNC is? And then um, that's that's for, for Seika. And then Brian, what what programs or, or, or what programs were you working on while you were at SpaceX? Because that's typically how like folks will date their time at SpaceX. Yeah, great question. So CNC is a computer numerical m- control machine. They're large, like big machines, typically uh, like, you know, the size of half of a room and they cost, you know, half a million, couple million dollars, depending on the machine. And they manufacture They're the backbone of a lot of manufacturing in America and especially a lot of advanced manufacturing. It's a an industry that's not spoken about very often, but it creates most of the things that you and I are interacting with every day. So very cool machines, uh, not a super well-known industry, but very valuable in the world of manufacturing. Metal cutting robots. Metal cutting robots. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Yeah. And then my time at SpaceX, uh, especially full time, was focused, worked on a lot of different products, but primarily all on Merlin 1D, so primarily our first stage engine. And then kind of my keystone project, if you will, was leading the refurbishment process for our first stage engines. So once we recovered that first rocket, I was like, hey, sign me up. I want to go to the Cape. I want to figure out what we need, what they look like, what we need to do to make them fly again. And then own that whole process of getting them sorting out requirements and then the process for actually refurbishing them. Reduce, reuse, recycle. It must be rewarding to see the degree <laughs> to which they've been con- like able to continue reusing various parts of the rocket. What was the what's the genesis story, I suppose, of Ad Astra? Like, was it just a moment where light bulb went off in one of your heads or both of your heads, uh, and you're like, "This is this is something we can make a business out of. This is something the industry needs." Or industries get into industries, but. Walk walk the audience through the, the story of how Ad Astra got its start. Yeah, so uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, when I was working at that CNC distribution company and I had got kind of got my arms wrapped around hiring internally for their corporate needs, I was nothing but hungry going, okay, how can I help the company make more money? And was hearing from the sales engineers that they'd be able to sell more of these machines if they had people to go with them, right? And so I had just an incredible boss and mentor and was just like, win beneath your wings, right? Uh, Run with it. And so I created this company called Advanced Manufacturing Careers. And so it it was essentially starting a company with training wheels on, right? Getting that entrepreneurial experience, but having the backing of a big company and really loved it, right? Super fulfilling, uh, very exciting to go find these hard to find people. So I'd had that experience plus, you know, some other minor businesses in my past and and really loved starting that up. So it was really, uh, you know, I'd had, had that, some of that experience and then Brian and I had a lot of these friends from SpaceX and we're noticing like every week, a new, really cool startups popping up, right? And Mm -hmm. starting to gather from either talking to those people who are starting those organizations or just kind of seeing who they were after that a lot of these startups were after the same talent or they're all after kind of that top 1%. It's so vital to have excellent talent, right? In the space startup world. And so Brian came to me 
and was like, hey, we should do this. Like, I have this technical expertise. You've kind of created a similar organization, different, but a similar organization in the past. Like, we should really take a stab at this. And I got really nervous. I was like, oh, we're, we're married. We're running a life together, right? We, we spend all this time together. Does it make sense for us to also have our work life yeah. be combined? That's, you know, there's, there are a lot of complicated areas, things that we'll need to talk about. Uh, but he talked me into it pretty quickly and it's been awesome. So that, that was the genesis behind it was seeing, it was seeing that there was a big need in the industry and we very uniquely had two the two skill sets that were required to make an exceptional fit to meet that need. Well, I was going to, we're jumping ahead here, but I was going to ask later on in the conversation, what it's like, you know, being partners, partners for life and, and business partners, but I'm glad to hear that it's been, it's been smooth. I want to move us on to the types of people that you're working with on both sides of the table, right? So companies and, and talent, you know, uh, and maybe, maybe one of you could take one side, one you could take the other, but I think we've, we've danced around this a bit, but I want to kind of explicitly dig in and we can go from there. Yeah, for sure. We're working on the client side, on the company side with early stage startups, both in the space industry, but also in the clean tech industry. So our average client is typically a, a founder, a couple founders. And they generally have engineering backgrounds and they're often from SpaceX, not necessarily because I already knew them, but there's uh, a disproportionate amount of founders that are coming out of SpaceX these days. And that's the type of culture that's being built. There's everyone's bringing this ethos from SpaceX of, hey, we need to iterate quickly. We need to hire the right people. We need to focus on good products and testing. And that's the mentality that, that everyone has. We're, we're finding that most of these founders are pretty true engineers. And that's um, who we're excited to be working with. The, they have a really direct pulse on what the needs of the industry are, what the technical product needs, and then are also br bridging that gap on the business side. And then on the, on the, on the, I suppose on sort of the, the talent side, Seika, you, we, we, we spoke before we started recording, we spoke a little bit about this isn't like a passive search and it's more active. Can you unpack what that means for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the roles that we're typically filling are highly technical roles and executive search. So kind of anything in the technical vertical. Uh, we're, we're not, I don't recommend necessarily using us for coming to us for entry level positions. However, we really care deeply about our partnership with our clients, right? When we get partnered with our clients, we're not just kind of a third party partner that like checks a box. We really get partnered. We look at their whole process. We help them optimize their entire kind of hiring process and really understand what they need. Uh, so sometimes clients have been like, hey, can you please help us with this entry level role? And then they can talk us into it. But uh, for the most part, it's, it's you know, it's a, a couple of years of experience all the way through that executive level uh, technical search. We would, wouldn't be a great use case for a CFO, for example, like 
that's not our area of expertise for a chief financial officer, but there are other places that would be a great use for that. CTO, excellent, right? Mm. Et cetera. Um, yes. So we talked about we talked about the active and the passive candidates. So a, a lot of companies will do is, and this is not exclusive to startups. Some large organizations do this too. They, what we call post and pray, right? They post a job, they look at the applicants that are coming in and they pray the right ones in there. Um, and what we do is very, very different. We do post our positions uh, sometimes, but most of that's for brand awareness. Mm-hmm. Our, we are going after candidates who are often not looking, do not often have updated information represented online. Um, They're happily employed and we contact them to understand what is truly motivating them, what they're really hungry for. And if we have an opportunity that's actually going to take them to that next level. Is post and pray sort of the recruiting version of spray and pray? There's got to be some sort of relation there story there or maybe it just it just happened one day and no one knows the backstory i like that though i like yeah. i like the term the term post and post and pray um, what is spray and pray spray and pray uh yeah. it, it can apply it can apply to a lot of things it's just like okay i mean it, it it's it's just like yeah 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 it's just like yeah 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 like 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 uh untargeted it's like like you know a fire hose um yeah not 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 some some connotations that, that are that are not not so good, but well, let's stick with fire hose. <laughs> so, we so we even is, find that companies that are doing post and pray, they often don't even have the time to review the applicants that they do have, and so right. there's often this mich- mismatch of we really really need this, but we don't quite have the time or resources to make that happen, especially on the active side, and that's really a big part of where where we come in. I think it's typically beneficial for these founders who are working on the coolest stuff, really exciting ideas, really compelling technology. And you may as well tap your network first. I think that's really the lowest hanging fruit. And that's often how you get your your founding team or your initial hires, you're posting on LinkedIn, you're networking, you're, you're getting those key people, usually that way. It's often hard to get all 100% of those early employees that you need that way. And that's where we come in to, to help them. Or once they kind of reach a point of growth where they fully tap their network and they need to expand beyond that. And that's where mm-hmm. the, the search becomes really critical. What's the sweet spot for y'all in terms of, you know, you just mentioned 100 employees. So you can use whatever, whatever metric or barometer you prefer, but, you know, headcount or maybe... This is, you know, we're, we're obviously kind of referring to earlier stage companies and startups. And so, so I don't know, fundraising stage, that sort of thing. What do, what do y'all look for in clients that you work with? Yeah, for sure. I would say on the, the size and stage side of things, we're looking for, there's no such thing as too early. We've hired mm-hmm. employee number two and, and onwards. I think typically it, it often ends up not being the best use case once we're kind of beyond series B, C or so, or getting north of a couple hundred employees. It, it just tends to kind of change the dynamic and mm-hmm. it becomes a larger scale recruiting operation and the, the internal teams a lot, a lot bigger and, and stuff like that. And so 
there are definitely exceptions to that. We have clients that are smaller in headcount, but later stage in funding or vice versa. And there, it largely just depends on their needs and how good of a fit we are for those needs. But yeah, typically into that first 100 employees is a, is a quite strong fit. And then after that, it just is more case by case. Would it be interesting for us to say more about why or is that good? Yes, it would. Yes, it would. No, no, no. I, I want to know everything without, without you revealing yeah. any of your trade secrets. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So what's interesting, I think, about the work that we do and some of the feedback that we get from clients is they are, uh, we'll get really positive feedback about our write-ups that they're incredibly thorough they're not they're not super long right it's like a page and a half or maybe a page but it's it's very thorough and it's digging in deep right we're not checking the boxes of like job requirements do you have three years of cad like no we're asking questions about what you owned what it looked like what were your hands on etc and we also get really strong feedback about how our process is iterative and sometimes Often, I'll even say we are going through the process with a hiring manager who maybe we started out looking for one profile, but after interviewing a couple of people, the hiring manager has realized, you know what, I'm actually changing what I'm looking for a little bit after having spoken to these people and we move with them, right? And so it's this kind of dance that we're in and you have to have a decent technical understanding of the or of the role and you have to have a decent cultural understanding of what the hiring manager is looking for. And so in order for us to do this dance and for us to adjust our screen with what the hiring manager is looking for, we have to have a close relationship. And as the organizations get bigger, unless we have set unless we have a special setup that allows us to continue working very directly with the engineers who are hiring for these roles, the layers of personnel and the layers of red tape that get put in between us and the person that's actually yeah. making the decision make us less capable of doing that dance. So that's why we found st- sticking really small makes things, frankly, more fun for us and we're able to deliver better results. Yeah, I think it's also <clears throat> what's compelling to us. We're, you, you mentioned the red tape. I think that's really key and important. We're compelled by moving quickly and not getting bogged down in too many processes that aren't adding value. Mm -hmm. And then it's also the early stage companies are these high risk, really unique ideas that are very exciting and they need the, the odds are stacked against them and they need the right talent to actually achieve their goals. And so we basically feel like we have a larger ability to impact the industry if we're going to the early stage startups that have the best ideas, the best founders and are saying, we think you're going to succeed. We want to help you get there faster. That's what's really exciting to us. Sure. I want to pat myself on the back and I want to, I want you, you all to pat yourselves on the back too, because we made it this far into the conversation without using the term SpaceX mafia. Of course, now, you know, we, <laughs> it, it was, it was bound to happen. It was going to, yeah, exactly. It was going to happen at some point. But you've hinted you may have at this. Hinted yeah, yeah, yeah. We've hinted at this a little bit. I want to turn our focus to the matriculation of employees and engineers and, and companies who are at the earlier stages of some of these quote unquote new space companies. And, you know, may, maybe unpack a bit 
and and Brian, you obviously have had sort of you, you've had the insider now the outsider's view of this why it is and this isn't the first time that I've heard this you know uh, it, 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 Lauren Lauren Lyons who was I think just three on the podcast we talked we talked a bit about this and it's it's really interesting to go back and and, and look at the tape for that one because because a lot of these themes uh, carry are, are, have carried over and then so so you know clearly nothing has changed but I'm curious why why it is that you know SpaceX is kind of that 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 heavyweight that is seeding a lot of the rest of the industry, if not directly churning out all these new entrepreneurs. Ooh, there there's a lot there that in a lot a lot of different directions we could go, but I think SpaceX has developed has has always had this culture of extreme ownership and of rapid iteration and. Those are really, really vital pieces of the puzzle to a successful startup. You can't segment a, a team of five into design and analysis and manufacturing and production and all these things. You, you really need someone to say, hey, I'm going to own this specific product start to finish. I, I'm going to be proud of what I've done, but I'm also going to own the mistakes I've made and fix them. And I think that's something that SpaceX does really well. Even interns, interns often own flight hardware at SpaceX. And that was unheard of at the time and was a really compelling reason about what hooked me to SpaceX in 2010, 2011, when I first heard about them while I was in school. And I think that produces a type of engineer who knows the whole product development life cycle and who has put hardware into space quickly and probably on multiple occasions. And those are the type of people we need to start these companies and be able to get those demo missions up as fast as possible. Because how are you going to raise your next round of funding? You're going to do it by achieving the milestones that you said that you were going to achieve to investors. And what investors want to see in those milestones, they want to see real progress with your hardware. And that's not easy in space because you gotta you gotta get it up there. That's a lot of work. And so I think that fundamental layout of how you approach problem solving is really critical and allows you to do the most with the least amount of capital and personnel. And and so we're we're gonna switch gears a little bit. Uh, if you'll indulge me, I, I want to put my my armchair economist hat on. Because I think that you you all are are privy to or have visibility into a lot of the kind of sector wide changes and sort of meta trends that are happening. What have you observed over the past few months or quarters as it relates to company creation, you know, hiring, uh, hiring slowdowns, hiring acceleration, whether that is 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 kind of different by by sector. Uh, we, we can, I, let, let's start kind of high level and then I, I'll, uh, we can go from there. Yeah, I, absolutely. So I, you know, we had some pretty big layoffs happening in the tech sector, like, like massive, right? right. Facebook and we, we had a lot of them and some of the, uh, you know, founders that we were talking to are going, this should be great for us for hiring, right? We're going to have there's there's going to be so many more pool, people in our candidate pool and we were kind of like yeah maybe maybe <laughs> uh by and large 
I'm going to guess that the people that we're going after are now going to be more risk averse and are going to want to stay where they are and are not likely going to be available still. There are going to be exceptions to that, right? And we want to snatch those people up as fast as we can. But in a lot of ways, the people that we want are still going to be happily employed. And now they're going to go, ooh, the economy is looking kind of rough. I'm not sure I want to go to an early stage startup or even make a change from this environment that I know where, you know, I feel I feel yeah. safe. So uh, that that is what we ended up seeing. And instead of there being an increase in supply of the talent that we were after, we did see a higher reticence of that talent to make the changes that were necessary. And of course, there's more than just feeling safe at the company you're at. There's also, we're often asking candidates to relocate. So now they're relocating to a potentially risky organization during, yeah. you know, an upcoming uh, predicted recession. So selling a house with a 3% interest rate and looking at what their new mortgage is going to cost. Yep. And, so it, looking and it, at- it really is, it really is tied to the macro. Like, you know, we're talking about kind of, kind of inflation and all of these bigger uh, economy wide, wide trends. But that makes sense. How do you get folks over the hill? Cause you're obviously doing it. You know, how do you convince someone? Obviously you can't just you can't lie and be like, Oh no, this job has total job security for the next day. Cause it obviously doesn't. Um, and I will, we'll save the equity piece maybe for a little bit later in the discussion. But. What are, what are some, and again, you don't have to give away all, all of your trade secrets here for our, our entire audience, but how do you, how do you convince talent and people who might not be so open to become potentially open to a new gig? Yeah, great question. And I, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. The first piece sounds really simple, but we see it missing a lot when people are go, taking candidates through the interview process. So it, again, it sounds really simple, but understanding early on, first time you're talking to a candidate, right? And it, maybe this is an exploratory conversation where they're not bought in at all yet. And you're just advertising your organization to them and telling them about the opportunity. Your primary goal in that conversation is to understand what truly motivates that individual. So that doesn't mean you go, hey, what motivates you? What are you looking for? And they go, I'm happy. I just really like solving hard to hard to solve problems. Right. Everybody says that. Um, and it's a, it's I mean, it's true and it's great, but it's not it's not at their core. Right. Why are they open to having a conversation and what would an opportunity have to offer in order to make it truly compelling for them to make a change and and not relenting in a very kind and you know relational way but not relenting until you feel you really understand what motivates that person what drives them in in their career and their dream right and then uh being honest with yourself and what opportunities you have available at your organization Figuring out, can I offer this person what they're hungry for? Can I fulfill that need for them, right? And using the rest of the interview process to repeat back to the candidate, this is what I see to be your motivation. Is that accurate? This is what I have to feed that. 
how compelling is this for you? Like it's, it's, it's very straightforward, but it's, uh, it's not often executed. Yeah. And that's somewhat helped. I would imagine by the fact that as we have kind of discussed throughout this conversation, that a lot of these folks are very mission driven. And I think that goes for, for a lot of people in this industry. It's this interesting combination too, of a lot of our candidates are exceptionally smart and driven and capable, but they're not always, you know, they're very happily employed. And so they're maybe not thinking about X, Y, or Z. And we have it come up fairly often that we'll ask questions and they'll be like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then it quickly turns in or they have a reservation and we're like, okay, well, what about this other perspective? And it's not a hard sell. It's a opening a dialogue, making sure everyone has the right information on both sides. And often we end up playing therapist and we're saying, wow, this is like a hard decision. What what do you need to talk through? Who's your support system? How can we help you get the information you need? And there is no one size fits all to getting someone over the finish line on making such a massive life decision. And so it's about understanding individuals, understanding what motivates them and being able to help them get what they want. And sometimes that's not the role that we reached out about and we say, Hey, this isn't it. Let's, let's talk in six months. We will have something then or whatever it may be. There you go. Yeah. Sounds like the job involves wearing a lot of hats. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be, be right back. And I, I want to keep us on this, this topic. Time for another word from our sponsor, Kepler Communications. Space operators face many downlinking roadblocks today, and they rely on decades-old technology to access critical data. Kepler is solving the downlink bottleneck by providing real-time access to satellite data, optimized latency, and high-speed downlinking capabilities. The company's hybrid network will modernize on-orbit communications with a combination of optical technology, S-band inter-satellite links, and a high-speed backhaul link to move data more efficiently back to Earth. Kepler offers a full stack of solutions with payload technology, spectrum licenses, ground infrastructure, and a satellite constellation with full orbital coverage to satisfy the entire communications requirements. Check out Kepler.space for more information. Again, that's Kepler.space. All right. All right. We are back. And I want to talk, I want to re- rewind the clock and go back to end of 2022, actually more so kind of mid 2022, you know, you mentioned big tech. And I think that all anyone needs to do is go look at that site layoffs.fyi. It really shows you the kind of ramp in every like, like really big tech companies and like the biggest unicorns, like laying off employees. But we're, you know, we're obviously talking a bit more about space and I want to, you know, there was definitely kind of a market marked decrease in fundraising funding levels for space companies in the back half of of last year. Did y'all see anything in terms of that coincide with a a slowdown in hiring? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Maybe interesting for us to mention, maybe not. When COVID hit, we saw this huge slam on the brakes with funding and huge slam on the brakes with hiring. Right. And we were like, Ooh, this is, this looks rough, right? Nobody knew kind of what to predict. And we saw that big kind of slam on the brakes for maybe, I don't know, three months. And then it picked, picked back up in a big way. Um, we definitely saw a big slowdown Q3 and then 
big time Q4 of last year. January, the it, Q4 is always a slower time for hiring. So it's not it's like the seasonality. Um, yeah, it's a seasonality. So many people are on vacations at different times, you know, candidates and hiring managers, hard to get on-sites booked and interviews and things like that. And, and planning for the, the following year, there's a lot of kind of calm before the storm happening in Q4 as well. So we definitely saw a, a big, a big slam on the brakes there. And then, yes, a, we've seen it pick up a fair amount already this early in in the year so we're we're seeing a big uptick yeah i think it's it's starting to ramp up it's not as, definitely not as quick as it ramped back from from covid which was very it was pretty binary it's pretty much shut off for three months and then shut turn right back on and continue growth uh, in 2020 this has definitely been more of a decline and now we're pretty confident that we saw the the bottom at the end of last year and we're starting to come out of it and like you said, the the same trends are happening in venture capital. We saw, uh, I think it was either Q3 or Q4 of last year was the lowest amount of funding since 2013. But that trend has already started to reverse and come back up. And so we definitely expect that to continue. But in general, companies tend to be a little pinched by inflation and, and concerned yeah. about future funding possibilities. And so but they need to grow. They still have to grow their team and still have to accomplish their goals. I think there's just being a little bit more strategic with, okay, do we really need this role and so, stuff like that to be really efficient with with their capital and potentially extend their runway a little bit longer to weather the storm. Yeah. Well, on, on the runway piece, what would you say to a founder or company or client like who isn't necessarily sure that they're going to get that bridge round done like you know because i don't know it's not like they can just completely cut off hiring i, I it depends really you know i, I don't i don't want to speak categorically here but of course probably the, the typical kind of archetype startup that you work with what what what's your advice for them do you kind of calibrate you know not to not to be overly blunt but like do you have to then kind of recalibrate who they're what what the job search looks like say for like a 10 person Space startup is still really early stage and still really, really theoretical, not necessarily de-risked in some of the ways that, that some of the more mature space companies are. Or would you so so would you re, kind of recalibrate who that who who you're looking for, or would you say kind of stay stay the course? I think that's such a great question, really insightful question. Yeah, I definitely think it requires recalibration, right? Like runway and funding is time and that time gets you the ability to mm -hmm. to stretch out. So if you you're not sure where that that bridge route, you know, you're not sure where that money's coming from, look taking a look at your hiring strategy and figuring out what headcount can we push off until we have a our site set on that next round of funding. It's really important. And that may look like, okay, we wanted to bring a, a true manager in, but instead that person needs to be a player coach and yeah. they're that that's going to be the role. Right. And now sure. we, that that's what we're targeting. And we really have to make that pivot. So yeah. Great question. Sure. Are there even, this is kind of getting switching gears quite a bit. Are there even enough aerospace engineers in the workforce and entering the workforce period? I don't know. I don't know if y'all have thoughts on this. I'm sure that you do. 
And Seika, you know, when we weren't recording, you, you talked about the funnel a little bit. So maybe we can make that part two of this question. But yeah, high level, you know, I, and, and I know that everyone has a different taxonomy. I imagine yours would kind of, you're not looking at, you know, the total number of like, you're not going to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and looking at like the total number of aerospace engineers. That's not your, 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 your TAM, if you will. But what are, what are your, what are both of your thoughts there? Yeah. Well, one thing I don't want to forget to mention was we're talking about the market also uh, the, and kind of supply and demand of talent. I also think it's interesting just to make a note that according to the Bureau of Labor, of Labor Statistics, uh, they're right. I think in January, we had a 3.4 unemployment rate. So yeah. while people are seeing these big layoffs, right, and they're going, oh, so many people don't have jobs. Like it's not reflected in the, in the numbers. So anyway, and I, I you know, the numbers of how yeah. many jobs to how many jobs it's, are needed. filled. Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's interesting. It's like, I'm not, I'm probably not, I, I, I'm not the first person to call it this, but like I've been I've taken to like when I'm talking to like my friends or whatever about it, like calling it like a, it's a white collar recession, you know? And it's interesting because I suppose space companies sort of straddle Space companies do straddle both worlds, so that's fascinating. I hadn't, I hadn't thought too, too much about that. So, can we talk a little bit more about the the, the funnel, though? And and again, yeah. kind of how talent goes through. Like, there's not a, it's not a pipeline. Uh, everyone has you know their own routes through through. Maybe they're still at at a company. still at SpaceX after ten ten years, fifteen years. Some people go to another company started by their friends. Some people start their own company, but how do you look at sort of those flows of people through the ecosystem and especially through company, Brian, that you worked at and, and the companies that you work with? Yeah, I, I don't know if this is going to be a satisfactory answer, satisfying answer for are there enough people in the industry? But talking about the funnel, I do think is interesting to kind of conceptualize all of that. So you've got at the top of your funnel, you've got all the people who are getting education in aerospace engineering, right? Or in a relevant industry at relevant education that uh, will work for that and then a desire to enter that workforce. Then people decide where they're going to go for their the beginning of their career. People who go to legacy organizations, Boeing, Raytheon's, right, Northrop's, become less relevant to startups. So they take a chunk of the pie away from who is relevant to startups. That's not a fast and solid rule. People can absolutely go from those legacy organizations to startups, but it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. I can dig into why I'm making that assertion. There are cultural and technical reasons that I make that statement, mm -hmm. but we can dig into it. Interesting. Um, so people who go to startups are still often very, very relevant to the larger organization. So now the, the 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 piece of the funnel that's going to startups is desired by two groups, right? And the piece of the but startups really are only taking from people who are getting the experience of having cradle degree of ownership. Uh, they're able to move in a fast paced environment and you know move fast, break things, etc. Um, and then from that piece of the pie, many space startups are. You know, People love the idea of taking pe uh, people from other industries with transferable skills. However, if you're trying to take software engineers from tech, we're asking them to take 50%, yeah. uh, uh, two-thirds pay cut 
like massive, there's a massive difference in compensation. And typically the people who are in the space industry are very mission driven, driven, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're going to try to tap tech to bring them in. It does happen. It can happen. We have gotten people to take 50% pay cuts to come in, right? Um, But then there are some other reasons that space again kind of narrows and and new space kind of narrows that pool down they require safety critical and highly reliable results where other organizations just it's just not as important right human lives aren't at stake as a result of what's being built and so what we see is the um and then the startups right really want the, the best of the best out of that group that we've already whittled down a fair amount. So it ends up with a, a pretty, pretty small talent pool that that everybody's kind of after. I'm sure I forgot pieces in there, but. <laughs> yeah, I think that <clears throat> that really covers it. There's There just aren't enough industries that are highly relevant or large enough that are, that create a significant talent pool to go, to go from, to, to mm-hmm. steal from. I think. Mm-hmm. People want to, and people want the diversity of perspective and experience. But when push comes to shove, and they have two resumes or people on, on at on sites, they are going to pick someone who's actually put hardware in space. Yeah, and that's pretty yeah. much <laughs> funneled through SpaceX or the like. And it's just the the reality. And SpaceX is creating a lot of talent right now, for sure. And you know, the SpaceX mafia is real. And there you go. The the nod and i and yeah. i think that <laughs> i i think it's hard to compete with and i think the reality is that at the end of the day that's what 95% of our roles and founders want is someone who has that type of ex- ex- expertise already yeah well i imagine it's not only just like the haircut and like comp and perks but also like in the same way that you couldn't just go and teach in the 2010s, like a bunch of, of coal miners out of the job, you couldn't just make them learn to code overnight. Like there's, there's probably like massive assimilation issues too, coming from big tech, like not even just assimilation on like culture or anything like that, just learning, learning different like skill sets and, and, and knowledge and whatnot. How do you, how do you, uh, how, what's the process of educating folks that you work with about equity like what's the equity literacy like or is it more is it more so equity illiteracy yeah it's probably more literacy i think that it's it it often boils down to experience if you've been Mm -hmm. through a startup then you understand it and if you haven't you probably don't and there are again exceptions but that is generally true and it's really hard to convince people who don't have that understanding standing or experience with equity that they should value this piece of your compensation. And so that is a big part of what we do as well. We talk Mm -hmm. to candidates about, Hey, here's, here's the equity that's being offered. Here's why it's a strong offer. Maybe, maybe it's not. Let's talk about that as well. And, um, and then work to educate them on what, what that means. How are they going to, have access to it. What taxes are they going to have to pay? What a how's their their equity going to get diluted? Uh, when will they? How long of a time horizon should they have to be looking at? All yeah. these things are 
are typically not in the forefront of people's minds and they need strong education on that to to be compelled by that piece of the, the package where i think uh, i think it's in some ways it, it may actually even be getting worse in some ways too because now spacex as of like 2013 or 14 if you started there you'd now get at or after those dates you're now getting rsus versus options yeah. and therefore yeah. it's just a very different piece of the puzzle it's it's rsus are much much simpler spacex is offering buybacks routinely you're, right. it's much closer to cash than the monopoly money of of options that you're really <laughs> optimistic and hopeful for but have no tangible value from from day one for most of these startups and you just have to grind and put in the effort to 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 make it at value sure i want to move us along to the max q section of the interview so this is where i kind of try to bundle it with tough questions together and i'm doing so because this question is related to what we're what we were just speaking to the first thing I want to know is how would you, how do you, how do you sort of negotiate like the competing interests there when you're working with both sides? And so let's just take equity negotiation as like working with a company that's hiring and then, you know, the talent. Great question. Thank you. Yeah. Total great question. So our client, our customer is the company. So that's that's the first piece, right? Um, as a, our position is not to um, is not to fill a role. Our goal is to find the right person that's going to ultimately to achieve. One. Right to find the one, right to achieve mm -hmm. the real goals. So we don't want to have a short-term happiness. We really want, we're really looking for who's going to be the right person to get this company where they need to go. And that means how we kind of envision our role is getting all of the information about what each party wants and needs and helping them get to where the deal can be made, right? So our our motivation is finding the best spot for the deal to be made. Um, that all being said, so we try to have the conversation. So it, part of why your question is so great is because at startups, we often are trying to get people who are, especially with early stage startups, who are willing to take a little less cash than, you know, market value or maybe kind of right on the nose of market value, but they're the 1%, right? Yeah. So they, so average is like not a good compensation for them. And we're saying, but you're going to get this equity and that's where you have the opportunity to really maximize wealth. So, uh, so it's a great question, figuring out that negotiation process and what we're trying to work out kind of, you know, as Brian alluded to earlier, playing that therapist role is understanding from the candidate's perspective, what do you need to make this worth it for you? And, and understanding either the, the, the firm ceilings or the desired ceilings from the organization. And if we, uh, early on, if we see that what the organization is trying to cap their compensation at is gonna be 
brutally difficult for them to fill. We have so much information that we're collecting every single day, like throughout the industry that we can usually go, the person that you're looking for matches one of these 10 profiles, right? They look like this person and this is what these people are asking for. So if you want to try to get somebody to take, you know, 50K under the minimum that all these people are, like, you're going to be in mm-hmm. trouble. And they're, they're yeah. considering equity. As well. I, I can, I can, you know, that, that makes sense in my head because as, as you said, you know, it's long-term incentive alignment. The, the, the goal for your, your client, the companies you're working with is, like I said, to, to, to find, to find the one and, and happily ever after. And so I'm going to take this, this, this metaphor and torture it and make it really protracted. Uh, because I, my <laughs> next question, literally before, before this even popped into my head in this conversation, this was not planned. But my next question was to say, you know, uh, a hinge, the dating app, like they did a clever little marketing thing where it's like, Oh, we're designed to be deleted. Like that was their, that's, that's their shtick. Right. And so that the, the, the metaphor there and like this, this, this tortured matchmaking analogy is, when is, is that is that sort of your pitch as well, right? Because once companies get to like a sufficient scale, like you stop working together. Is that is that is that is yes. that right? Or yes and no. So for we kind of talked about like the size of company already that we're most motivated to work with. Okay. If a company was three hundred people, but their CTO or their chief engineer was going, hey, our internal team is having a hard time filling this role. We're the SWAT team that's really excellent mm-hmm. to be brought in okay. uh, for those roles, right? We're not going to scale a company up through their right. high volume roles. We're here for the hard to fill positions once an organization gets to that size. But again, we have to be working close enough with the actual person yeah. making the decisions the dance that helps us be be good at what we do. Yeah, I, I like that. It's like the, you know, like specialists or like you said, SWAT versus like like at scale. Like obviously you guys, y'all, y'all can't be the 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 outsourced like hiring arm of all these companies. So I think that that, that exactly. makes makes sense. I suppose I I would wanna I want to close out with predictions from y'all about where you see the industry going. And maybe the short term, so next half year or so, but also over the next few years. I mean, we can start with, with hiring. Oh, actually, I'm going to, I'm, uh, bookmark that, bookmark that one more, one more, one more substantive, small little mini segment that I wanted to hit on the nexus between space and climate tech. And cause you, you work with climate tech as well. And I'm sure that a lot of those going back to, episode three, like super long time ago with Lauren, she was talking about how there are all of these SpaceX mafia matriculating into to climate tech companies. So Brian, I'm curious, like why that that's, that's happening. That's obviously sort of a, a very mission driven area as, as well, but are there any other sort of like non-obvious reasons that a lot of your, your former coworkers, and I'm sure many of your close friends are, are going to, to create or join these, these companies that are driving, trying to save planet earth. I mean, that's a pretty good reason. So, yeah, I think that's the first and foremost reason is the mission driven aspect. 
in space, people are typically not making as much money as they would in tech or other industries. And that's okay because they're, they're motivated by the mission and doing cool things. And so after they've put rad hardware into space, like they're excited to go do a different challenge. And what's the most pressing challenge of our, of our generation? It's, it's climate. And so I think that's a big, big reason why that change is happening. But there, there is a lot of direct overlap in the skill set and technology as well. Mm-hmm. Climate tech is very hardware driven. Aerospace is very hardware driven. There's a lot of overlap with some of the core technologies. I've been really surprised and impressed to see just how much, how easy it is for a propulsion engineer at SpaceX who's working on liquid oxygen and kerosene to to go into clean tech and be working with methane and still liquid oxygen, but in different applications. There's a ton yeah. of value in understanding how to work with these fuels and so forth. And there's a ton of correlations with other arms of these of technology, but it tends to have a real it has really transferable skill sets that that work and but the the mission driven piece is definitely the biggest part. Do y'all remember what I was just where I just interrupted myself what I was going to ask because I'm going to be totally honest cards on the table I forgot predictions oh, 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 oh predictions yeah yeah okay we're back on track yeah you have you have any hot predictions yeah so <laughs> I think this this is probably not too big of a hot take but I think Starship has been delayed but mm-hmm. it's gonna happen mm-hmm. and we're gonna see that demo flight soon. Hopefully, yet in Q1 2023, but if not, are you gonna, you too? Are you gonna make the trek to to Boca Chica? Oh, that is quite the trek. Uh, it it, is. We'll, we'll have to see. I don't, I don't know if I trust the launch date enough to travel yeah, to yeah. South Texas for it, but otherwise, uh, we'll have to add it to the bucket list, though, for sure. Right, right. Well, if they if they reach that that cadence that they, they've been talking about, eventually, you'll be able to go whenever. Yeah. So with with Starship coming online soon, I I don't think it's a matter of if. I think it's a matter of when. It might it might be delayed mm-hmm. a while before totally. it's fully functional. But if your company's not planning for what that will look like, then you're probably behind the curve. And but yet there aren't that many companies out there that are betting on Starship that yeah. are more or less dependent on the unit economics maybe not firmly required to have it happen in the next two or three years, but are really going to be game changers based on having that capacity unlocked. And so I'm just so excited to see what sort of mega structures are assembled in space, where we go with all that capacity. Are we, are we going to go to Mars or are we just going to build massive structures in, in Leo bring earth, um, humanity off Earth just into to Leo and learn a lot there on the moon. I don't really know what it's going to be yet. We actually recently recorded a, a podcast with Scott Macklin of Gravitix. 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 That was the first thing we had to learn was how to pronounce their name. <laughs> yeah. And it was very interesting to learn and discuss the opportunities of getting humanity off Earth and what we should be going after. And I thought that was a really exciting discussion that kind of centered around this idea of what's going to happen once, once Starship is, is online. Yeah. Yeah. Conversely too. I mean, if, or we should probably say when it comes online, that 
then just Starship by itself becomes like a big risk factor for, for some companies and, and, and business models too, which are, are predicated on, you know, a, a certain model of launch and like fairings. Yeah. That, that's a, that, that could be its own, own podcast. And for, for further reading, or I should say listening for anyone who might've missed it, uh, Ariel Ekblah, we talked a little bit about that. It was released today. So it'll be two weeks ago when you're listening to this. Moving along on the, the lightning round kind of questions. <clears throat> this is a, this is kind of a toss up. This is the biggest softball of, of today. But if, if y'all, what, what rocket would y'all take to space tomorrow? You were going to go tomorrow. I mean, you, you got to pick Falcon 9. I mean, I think yeah. being able to see under under the hood a bit is give gives some confidence. And I think at this point, we're starting to approach this place where you're more compelled to fly in a flown rocket than a new rocket, which yeah, people weren't talking about a decade ago. People were talking about, oh, it's going to be a discount to fly on these second, third, fourth <laughs> missions. And I don't know if we've hit that day yet, but I think it's going to be the other way around, right? You don't want to be the test pilot on a, a brand new vehicle. You want to ride on it after it's got a couple flights. And so I think, yeah, I'll take flight three or four, maybe on a, on a Falcon 9. I think that's my vote. Right. Seiko, what TV or not TV could be TV, but what sci-fi universe TV or, or movie or book or other forms of, of medium? Would you live in if you had the choice or if you had to? Yeah. Avatar for sure, though. Man, Avatar 2 was. I, that's what I was going to ask. Which, which one? I guess they're the same world. So you live in the world between the two where there isn't a movie. Yeah. And <laughs> that, that's where oh. I would love to be. Yeah. Right. When yeah. things are chill. Yeah. Things, things, know, are, things are chill. Things that the movie right? start. We're not. We're not giving away any spoilers. But things are so chill, and then and then they get not so chill. <laughs> yeah, yep, I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm sure most most people will will have, have seen that. Um, what what a, of of those patches for those who are not watching, for those who are listening, there are a bunch of mission patches behind Brian and Seika. Which one means the most to you, Brian? Yeah. That's actually pretty easy for me. I think the Falcon Heavy demo was the biggest for me because that rocket was kind of I'm trying to think of the right way of putting it. We wanted to demo the technology, but also wanted to get some experience with reusability. And so we put together a lot of flown engines on that vehicle. And it was almost all of those engines had already been to space. And these were some of the first engines that got to go to space for a second time. And the five-year anniversary of that was yesterday. Was it not? Or was that? Yeah. It's, it's like, like that was the one. Maybe, was yeah, that the one, was that the one where, where y'all launched the Tesla Roadster? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, then, I'm almost positive that if it, if, if it wasn't yesterday, then I, I have to issue a correction. Uh, here's 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 the hoping that I didn't get that wrong, but I I, I, I think it, I think it was, or maybe it maybe I don't know. It, it, I think it, I think it was, but but we'll 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 have to yeah. check. But if it was, then maybe we cut this. Maybe we don't. I'll defer to, to our producer, but uh, we'll put the we'll put the graphic up on. So uh, one one thing that I almost forgot to to mention is that I'm in the presence of fellow podcasters, 
So congrats or, or I'm sorry. I don't know what, what your, what your experience has been like. It's definitely, it's definitely a bit of a grind, but I want to ask why start a podcast and how your experience has been. And then finally, part three, what, you know, a, a what one of your most memorable or, or favorite episodes was, and then we'll, we'll toss a, toss a link into that. Shows. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, it, why start it? We are having the, the coolest conversations with mm-hmm. tech in the space daily. And there's so much synergy in those conversations. We're able to discuss these topics that just get you like, you know, butterflies in your stomach when you're thinking about the future. So it just seemed like a conversation, like conversations that were worth sharing. And our experience has been, yeah, I think both congratulations and I'm sorry are really appropriate. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I feel that. I feel that deeply. It's so much work. And when you're talking to people that you care about so much and you're so impressed by and you really want to help kind of uplift their voices, it's a lot of pressure and, you know, you really want to get it right and you want to do it well. And so the first the first couple of episodes, man, we felt choppy and bumpy and and it was rough but we really started getting into our flow by episode three and i think now we've recorded eight yeah we have eight recorded as of today about four are published and we're, we're publishing them every couple weeks right now and it's been it's been a blast and i think we already have an episode out with hans over at spacex or former spacex and mm-hmm. he he's just a blast he's He's seen it all and he's he kind of had that key role for many, many years of SpaceX of how do you balance pushing fast, moving super quickly, taking the risks that you need to take, but also not endangering lives and payloads. And um, and how do you balance those things? Yeah. How do you decide when you take a risk and when you don't? And it was an incredible conversation to have his insights because I don't know of anyone in the world that has had to make as many decisions or analyze as many risks or solve as many problems as Hans has. Oh, I can only imagine that that is a tough needle to thread. So we will, we'll definitely include a a link to that and everyone listening to this should should go check it out because these are, these are, you know, pretty, pretty similar uh, overlapping kind of audiences. I'm, I'm jealous though, because you could definitely get a lot of, of space, former space actors on that probably wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be as inclined to go on like a, you know, formal media companies podcast. So I will, uh, I, I, I'll be listening for any sort of uh, nuggets or, or little, little scooplets, but yeah, everyone should go check out that episode. Anyways, maybe I will, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll bump into you to y'all in, in Boca Chica Starbase soon or, or out West, but this has been a really, really great conversation. I appreciate the time and I, I definitely appreciate y'all drop my pen. I appreciate y'all indulging me with the uh, the metaphors and, and everything. So um, here's to uh, here, here's to hoping here's to hoping that that space companies continue continue hiring and and you know this, that the whole sector doesn't have that that type of drop that, that y'all saw saw in COVID. Thanks again for the time. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you Ryan. So it was a pleasure. Alrighty, space cadets. That will do it for Pathfinder 0036. Hopefully some of y'all out there learned a thing or two that will help you land your next gig, or if you're on the other side of the table, your next technical hire or even co-founder. Pathfinder is powered by Payload and produced by Peter Shaw. 
you like what you heard, leave us a review and rating wherever you're listening to this. Or better yet, share the show with a fellow space. Next Tuesday, we will be talking with Joel Spark, the co-founder of Spire, about the company's space services business and a whole lot more. Until then, I'm Ryan Duffy signing off, and I will see you back here next week. Thank you.